The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, it's been a few weeks now since we have done a fashion history now. And in that intervening time period, Cass, so many things have happened. We have a lot to discuss today. But the first thing that I would like to say is a massive shift within the contemporary fashion scene. It was announced this week that Sarah Burton is departing McQueen after 26 years. That is crazy. And I knew that you wanted to talk about this, so I have not dug into it anymore because I'm going to let you share it with me and our listeners. But yeah, what happened? Yeah, well, you know, officially the, the the party line is that there has been no particular reason given. Um, it's just that she is departing after this last collection. And so it's kind of people are reading between the lines that maybe like Kering, um, who is, of course, McQueen's parent company, is looking to bring in new blood. And it has been a minute. And, you know, I realized um, that, of course, I've, I've known who she was since the 90s, but I didn't know too, too much about her. Mm-hmm. So just a few fun facts. She was born Sarah Hurd in 1974 in Cheshire, England. She briefly went to art school in Manchester before she applied to Central St. Martin's for fashion design. And it was actually one of her professors who was a close friend of Lee McQueen who recommended that she apply for what they would call their a placement. I guess it's kind of like what we would call here an internship in 1996, which she received. And apparently she did quite, quite well because as soon as she graduated the next year in 1997, she was hired full-time. And three years later in 2000, she was made the head of women's wear. Wow. And, you know, this is a meteoric rise for someone who is still in their 20s, right? To be the head of McQueen uh, women's wear at that very, very young age. He was designing for Givenchy at the same time concurrently. So he definitely probably needed the additional you know, support. And then of course, when Lee passed in 2010, she was tapped as the creative director. And if you read Gods and Kings, which is one of your and I's very favorite fashion history book, 
notes, um, it goes into detail how, how she had um, kind of there towards the end of Lee's life been running the show from behind the scenes a little bit because he wasn't always necessarily coming into work on a reliable basis because right. he was really struggling. So yeah, so ever since 2010, she has been the sole creative director of McQueen. In 2011, she was granted the Order of the British Empire. Her husband is David Burton, who is a fashion photographer who also shoots for McQueen sometimes. And I would say of most notable note, the reason why people might know her name specifically outside the context of McQueen is she, of course, designed Kate Middleton's wedding dress, her reception dress, and her sister Peppa's dress for the royal wedding. Yes. And I mean, I was pretty shocked just because she's been there for so long. And also, it just makes me sad, too, because I feel like there we're always hearing about departures from these historic houses, right? And there's like, just mm-hmm. seems like this rotating door that these designers go through. And I always, it, it just always makes me think about like the pressure that they're under, right, to produce, too, because mm-hmm. this is so much a commercial endeavor. And even if they are artists, they just get so burnt out with just trying to keep up with like the expectations of helming one of these brands. So Mm -hmm. massive, massive, massive brands. And it's, and it's really been on her, on her shoulders in a really big way since 2000. Right, right, right. You know, so, so yeah. What about you? Do you have any fashion history news? I do. And speaking of heritage houses, you know, so when we say heritage houses, it's really these historic houses that we're talking about, right? So like Chanel, Balenciaga, et cetera, who have these like long lineage of designers who carry on the legacy of the house's namesake. And Dior is no exception. And we're really familiar with Christian Dior, which, of course, he created his famous brand in 1947, opened his house, sadly died just 10 years later. And then Yves Saint Laurent, who succeeded him briefly. And then, of course, we know John Galliano in the 90s. And, of course, Raph Simmons. And currently, there's Maria Grazia Curie. But there is the lesser known legacies of two men who helmed the house between Yves Saint Laurent and John Galliano. And of course, you and I know this, April, and that's Gianfranco Ferre, who preceded John Galliano from 89 to 96. And then Mark Bohan, who preceded him. Mark Bohan worked for Dior for 30 years. And the reason I'm bringing him up is because he just passed away a few weeks ago. And so I just wanted to do a little introduction to his life and work and an homage to this designer who had the longest tenure at the house and yet is the one we arguably know the least about. Yeah. And you know what? I I think I have a clue as to why. Um, He himself said that he preferred classics with a twist, right? So out of any of those designers that you have named that have been at the helm of Dior for oh so many years, he was probably the least flashy. Right. But again, he was there for the longest. Like he was actually there. If you add up the entire amount of time that Christian Dior was the creative director, Yves Saint Laurent and John Galliano combined, mm-hmm. Bohan was still the head of Dior longer. Yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah. So who was Mark Bohan? Okay, so he was born in Paris in 1926. He was encouraged into fashion by his mother, who was a milliner. And in 1945, so we're looking at the tail end of World War II, he was, I think, maybe too young to be drafted. He was not even 20. And he got a job for Haute Couturier Robert Piquet, which is a bit of serendipity, April, because Piquet was, of course, also Dior's very first job in Haute Couture, Mm -hmm. albeit a decade earlier. So by 1945... Dior was no longer there. He was designing for Lucien Lelong, but he was on the precipice of launching his own brand in 1947. 
And it should be said, Dior is like, I think, 20 years older than Bohan. He was born in, I think, 1905. So meanwhile, Bohan worked for a series of designers during the 40s and 50s, including Edward Molyneux, Madeleine de Roche, Jean Patou, and he even briefly opened and closed his own house at one point. And in 1958, he was hired to head Christian Dior's London branch before being prompted to head become the head designer at Dior, who he replaced Yves Saint Laurent, who was unceremoniously fired after being drafted into the army. Um, and that's a whole other story we can go into. And also putting a leather jacket down the runway that was based on countercultural streetwear styles. It was too scandalous for the couture world to handle. Yeah. You saw I was too ahead of the curve. He wanted someone more traditional and that's how Bohan got this job. The Wall Street Journal said of his first collection, which was um, his debut 1961 collection, they said, Mr. Bohan made an instant mark. He surprised reviewers with 1920s influence styles, emphasizing slim silhouettes on floral print dresses, tailored suits, and his own take on Dior's little black dress by adding flapper style layers. These touches of playfulness began recurring themes for Mr. Bohan, who often added elements such as subtle beading or bows as counterpoints to his refined lines. And they said that the show received a glowing reception. So as we said, he helmed the brand from 1960, like as head designer from 1960, 1989. Why don't we know more about him, April? You definitely hit the nail on the head when you said why. And the Wall Street Journal also said that Mr. Bohan's designs nearly always carry the name Dior rather than his own. Meanwhile, the designer he replaced as Dior's chief style visionary, Yves Saint Laurent, built one of the world's best known personal brands, right? So Dior was not particularly ahead of the curve, but he was doing elegant, sophisticated designs, but really wasn't like directly engaging with the youth and pop culture in a way that was that like Yves mm -hmm. Saint Laurent or Andre Courage were in the 60s. Even the Miss Dior ready to wear line, somebody else designed that. He just oversaw it in the 60s. And so over his 30-year tenure, he adapted with the times, but just, again, as in a more like subtle, understated elegance, So, but high, high luxury, right? So not necessarily groundbreaking, but high art of haute couture. So those like luscious materials, the supreme craftsmanship and quality, impeccable construction and fit. So maybe not a revolutionary in terms of clothes, but it is worth noting as I was like going through all of his collections over the years that he had a really racially diverse cabine like very early on and it stayed consistent mm -hmm. throughout his tenure there, which was really cool. So yeah, I mean, Women's Wear Daily quoted him in 1970 as saying, what I'm trying to do is create luxury, quality by taste, by simplicity, something very refined, very elegant, not showy at all. That is true elegance and so few understand it. So notable clients included royalty, socialites, celebrities. And then in 1989, he was replaced by Gianfranco Ferre, who was an Italian, and that was a whole scandal. And then he had a brief stint designing for Norman Hartnell until 1992. And then he continued designing under his own name after that. And I really couldn't find out, I don't know if you know any more about him in the 21st century, but really all of the biographies I saw kind of ended there. Yeah, for the most part too. I think he was fiddling about doing some other sort of maybe even culinary project towards the end of his life. Um, or I might have him confused. Well, Rudy Gernrich was definitely doing like soups and culinary things at the end of his life. But I, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think Bohan was too. So don't quote me on that, friends. It's just like, it's just like a something haunt, rattling around in the back of my head right yeah now. it's something I just want to say too is that he was 97 years old he was born in 1926 
And he was born the same year as my grandma, who just passed away. My grandma passed away, I think, like five days before him. They're both 97 years old, same year as Queen Elizabeth II was born. 1926, April, can you just imagine all of the things they had seen in their lifetime to have been born? They were almost 100 years old when they died. So Mm -hmm. it's just an incredible lifetime. Like, what a life to have lived. So, I mean, just like the, like, rising predominance of the automobile, you know. (laughs) The internet. The 60s. The internet. Cell phones. Selfie culture. (laughs) Yeah. Completely wild. And actually, something that happened this week as well was entitled Fashion Icons. There was an auction at Sotheby's. And some of you might have heard about this um, the last few weeks or so because there were lots of kind of things on Instagram um, talking about how Sarah Jessica Parker's fascinator Mm. or her little headpiece that she wore for her wedding in Sex and the City. Um, And then they kind of recycled it and brought it back in uh, this yeah, and just like that, it's it's a, a vintage 19th century taxidermied bird with feathers. It's it's like kind of like this jade turquoise blue mm-hmm. color for the most part. That was part of this auction. So that's how I got pulled into it. But according to Sotheby's, this is now going to be a yearly or maybe not even yearly. They're saying it's the inaugural oh. fashion icon sale. So there are going to be more. Um, and they describe it as a highly curated selection of fashion pieces from the most influential people, designers, and cultural moments. The fashion icon sale celebrates the legendary people, unforgettable events, and unparalleled creativity through the lens of fashion. And also something that I found so interesting about this particular sale is the fact that it has all these tie-ins to our back catalog of dressed episodes. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) So many things. So like, not only have we had the costume designers for, and just like that on the show, right, who recycled and reused that fascinator we were just speaking of, we've also done an episode on Princess Dice revenge looks. And in that episode, we speak very specifically about one of the garments that was up for sale in this auction oh, that just happened this week. And that was Princess Diana's sheep sweater. So it was a, like a knit sweater or a jumper, if we're using British English, um, that had white sheep all over it and then one black sheep. <laughs> um, and it was a favorite of hers. She was photographed wearing this at a polo match. It's one of her most iconic, emblematic looks, right? It's all, it was all over the press. Well, she loved this sweater so much that when it became damaged, she sent it back to uh, the the makers and had them reweave her another version, which they then sent to her. And that second version, the black sheep was in a different position. So when she wears <laughs> it in the press photos, you know, which version of it it is. So the one that was sold in this auction was the one that was damaged, the one that was sent back. And it went for a whopping $1.143 million. Yeah, I was <laughs> It was, it was kind of wild because I knew that the auction was about to end and I was actually on the auction website, just like watching the bids go up. And then I had to teach a class. And so (laughs) when I stopped looking, it had already exceeded the auction estimate and it was at um, $220,000, 
by the time I got done with this class, like an hour and a half later, it, I came back and the auction had ended and it was at $1.143 million for a sweater. So very, very special. We do not know who was the winner. Um, oftentimes this information is kept private. Till it goes on exhibition or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping that it ends up at a museum or somebody, you know, loans it to an exhibition, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that was not the only piece of princess dyes that was in the sale. There was also a Murray Abed evening gown that went for $381,000. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's fascinator that we have referenced actually went for way underneath what the auction estimate was, which was anywhere from forty to $70,000. It went for $25,000, which was just barely over what the opening minimum bid was. So that was kind of a switch up. Surprising. Also surprising, uh, Michelle Obama's vintage Norma Norell dress was in the auction that she wore for a particular event. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but she's definitely been photographed in it. That auction estimate was going to be anywhere from Thirty to sixty thousand dollars, and it only went for nine thousand dollars. So, yeah, I know. Someone very, got very a interesting. steal. Yeah, and then just another quick couple of mentions here, um, and back to McQueen. It must be said, Kate Winslet's dress that she wore when she was nominated uh, for an Oscar in 1998 was designed by McQueen when he was at Givenchy. That went for thirteen thousand dollars again, underneath the thirty to sixty thousand dollar auction estimate. And then there was a whole selection of Lauren Bacall's Hermes bags that were up for sale as well. So um, uh, her Kelly bags sold for. Well over auction estimate, they sold for like $9,000 each. One didn't sell at all. But yeah, so it wasn't a huge auction. I had like 10 or 11 items in it, but some of them were, you know, very central to fashion history and and very central to things and topics that we've covered on this show. So that's, that's really why I wanted to mention it. Yeah, and that also just another episode you could also reference would be murderous millinery mm -hmm. <laughs> the history of killing birds for your hats uh, which mm -hmm. might be maybe because of the climate today why it didn't go for as much money i don't know i don't know yeah, yeah. it's interesting uh, it is interesting Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Well, I have not one, not two, but three three separate fashion history documentaries, which all have to do with dressed topics we've covered on dressed that are all coming out, if not already 
are already out. Uh, and actually, I think they are all three out. The first is, of course, Apple Plus's The Supermodels. Mm-hmm. Quote, in the 80s, Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista, and Christy Turlington became fashion icons, then transcended their industry by uniting. This is a story of how they claim their power and shape the world that followed. I mean, yes, these women defined, redefined what it meant to be a model, right? Rising to own celebrity, their own celebrity status in their own right, demanding huge salaries, and then kind of pervading popular culture in a way that still very much resonates with us today. And they're kind of just everywhere, right? They were just at Vogue World, mm-hmm. which is this... I kind of had to look that up. I wasn't sure what Vogue World was. And I maybe I don't still know. But it was kind of launching Fashion Week, Vogue World. Yeah. It's like a theatrical. Yeah. Yeah. They they started it last year. They started it in New York. And it's basically like a public performance of sorts that you can get into if you buy tickets. But also then it's like partially invite only two and they did it outside on the street um when they did it in new york and i think they did the same thing when they when they held it in london but apparently every year when they do this they're going to hold it in a, in a different fashion capital and so they they're um they gather all these designers and all these models together and it's and it's just basically like a i guess like a, a performance a runway yeah. show Sorts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kinda. They had like ushers or whatever of the show where like a bunch of famous British actors, but uh, I didn't dig too much in it. But of course, all four supermodels were there promoting the documentary. And then of course, many of our listeners will probably know that these four models came together in a legendary Vogue cover, January 1990, shot by Peter Lindbergh, also featuring Naomi Campbell, Linda Vagelista, and Tatiana Patitz, who asked or she would be, no doubt be part of this documentary. And then of course, Christy Turlington. And this September issue in Britain and America is these four supermodels again. And I don't know how you felt about this this spread. I wasn't super impressed with it. Definitely not as iconic as the 1990 shoot, which Cindy actually reflected on recently. And I thought this was really lovely. She said, when people ask me what was my big supermodel moment, I always refer to this Vogue cover and that autumn winter 1991 Versace show when we sang George Michael's Freedom as we strode down the catwalk. But the Versace show wouldn't have happened if we hadn't done George Michael's video. And George Michael would have chosen actresses to star in his video had he not seen the Vogue cover. So it all comes back to it. And she says, at the time, I had no idea it was going to be so legendary. She talks about Vogue editor Liz Tilbaris had asked Peter Lindbergh to photograph the new women of the 90s. And Peter's reply was that he couldn't do it with just one woman. The idea of beauty had broadened. It could not be summed up with either a blonde, blue-eyed girl or a sexy brunette, he told her. There was change in the air, and Peter and Liz picked up on that. We weren't photographed with a ton of hair and makeup. We were quite undone. And coming out of the 80s, which was all big hair and boobs, pushed up. It felt refreshing and new. She says, I love the styling, those little Giorgio de Sant'Angelo bodysuits with our Levi's. So mm-hmm. if you've never seen this, this image, look it up. It is very bare and iconic. And then of course, and very different than the one that is on the cover of the magazine now. But and then the second documentary, which I'm sure you've heard of April is Invisible Beauty about pioneering black model turned model agent Beth Ann Hardison, who also has made a name for herself as a tireless activist advocate for representation in the fashion industry. 
And I have been trying to get her on the show. I still hope to have her on the show. So she started modeling in the 1970s. She's a contemporary and friend of past dress guests, Pat Cleveland, Chris Royer. She was one of the models at the legendary Battle of Versailles. And she really laid the groundwork for an entire generation of Black artists, many who, of who are interviewed in the film, like Amon, Naomi Campbell, Zendaya. Uh, so it's actually showing in theaters. So if you're lucky enough for it to be in your local theaters, you can check out that. And then finally, one more fashion documentary for you to watch is on HBO on a person that we have also done a two-part episode on, another pioneering Black model, Danielle Luna, Woo-hoo. who unlike the previously five models we have mentioned is sadly no longer with us. She passed away far too soon at the age of 33 in 1979. So first Black model on the cover of Vogue, 1966 incredible career and if you want to check out those two part at that two-part episode you should and then check out all three of these documentaries so there's plenty of fashion history viewing out there for you dress listeners and on that point of the danielle luna um documentary Cass, you might know somebody who helped out with the images oh, april and it's your oh. co-host <laughs> very cool yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm not entirely, but um, they did reach out to us um, in terms of our collection at FIT um, and source some of the images that are included in the documentary oh, cool. from us. Very cool. So, yeah. Okay. So we are nearing the end of the month of September, but um, I still want to mention this anyway, because September is textiles month in New York city. And I did not know this until last year. Um, and I signed up for their mailing list. And so now I get all the activities this year in New York city. It's the eighth annual textile month. And it's very, very cool. And I'm mentioning this now, even though if you're not in New York or we only have a couple weeks left in the month so that you too can sign up for the newsletter and kind of keep abreast about what's going on. Not all of the activities are in person. Some of them are online. Um, So you do still have time to sign up for some of these things and attend if you want to. And that website is textilesmonth.nyc. And it is jam packed on this calendar for Textiles Month with things like artisan workshops. There's going to be a tapestry upcoming workshop at Museum of Art and Design here in New York City. There's an Annie Albers, who is, of course, um, a textile designer, kind of like contemporary, I guess, you could kind of say of Dorothy Liebus, who we've already done an episode on. There's an Annie Albers reading group, which is really cool. There's all kinds of meet and greets for textile designers, including dyers. There's a natural dyers meet and greet coming up. There's mending meetups, there's lectures, there's open studios, all kinds of like very, very cool things, including one event on 928, September 28th with past dressed guests. Linda Teller-Pete and Barbara teller Arnalis cast, which of course were your guests on the Navajo weaving episode. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I'm looking at, they have an Instagram yeah. to New York Textile Month. How cool. Yeah, so just jump on there. Even if you're not in New York, jump on there, sign up, and then you'll you'll know what's going on next year when it happens. So lots to do, lots to follow. I have one more follow recommendation, if we may, and it's kind of quick. It's cute. Cass, have you seen this Instagram account called Rick Dick underscore underscore. So it's like Rick Dick (laughs) and then two underscores next to each other. I have not. Well, its creator describes the site as fashion memes and AI art. Okay. 
we there's tons of sites out there or feeds out there that do AI fashion these days and also fashion memes. But um, one of the things that I like about this account in particular is that they kind of mess with the history of menswear in some of their AI recreations. Most notably, I got the biggest kick out of their Renaissance menswear fashions, especially in light of the fact that the entire week last week was basically like Renaissance and medieval menswear themed. Um, <laughs> yes. So this is, these things were happening in my world kind of concurrently, but some of the AI menswear that they did are these inflatable menswear looks. Okay. You know how you get a package in the mail and it has like those inflatable kind of like packing plastic packets in it. Not, I'm not talking bubble wrap. I'm talking about those like inflatable packets. Yeah. Well, imagine if that was the, the entire like material mm -hmm. used for Renaissance menswear. So they're kind of translucent, they're bubbly, they're inflatable. <laughs> it's very fun. It's very cool. And there's several different ones, but he does, and I'm assuming it's a he because it's called Rick Dick. He does all kinds of like fashion history themed uh, stuff on there too. He did the entire carpet of the Venice Film Festival and he barbified everybody with AI. <laughs> he did an entire Barbie sneaker line of, of fake Nikes with AI. He did some other really cool shoe things too. He did this whole line of um, heels that were based, the prompts were based on Ming Dynasty vases and dinosaurs. So the high heels look like their vases. So like that white ground with the blue painting, but in the motifs of the painting, along with dragons and scrolls and other things that appear on vases are actual dinosaurs too. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at his site. It's really fun. He does a lot of memes with the, uh, and fashion memes with the Royal family, which is kind of hilarious. And also too. Anna Wintour as well. Yes. She shows up <laughs> quite a lot as well. So, um, if you just want to uh, follow a cute and kind of cheeky fashion meme, AI art, uh, account, that's, that's my pick for this week. <laughs> Very fun following now. All right. In closing dress listeners, we want to talk to you about something we've been talking about a lot for like probably the past six months or so, April. And that is our New York fashion history tours mm -hmm. that we, we heard you and we have changed it a little bit. We've reconceptualized the trip. Yes. <laughs> Um, it is now reconceptualized as day tours. So it's kind of basically the same trip for the most part, except for we're not doing accommodations, we're not doing hotels, and then we're not doing kind of some of the like three dinners that we had planned. But otherwise, it's almost exactly the same. And we have three different day tours that you can either join one day, two days, or all three days. And each day has a unique itinerary we want to just right. point out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I mean, I think before we kind of talk a little bit more of the itinerary, we kind of just want to talk to you about why this trip is so special for us. Mm -hmm. I think New York obviously is a world fashion capital, but it's also where the place where dressed started. Like there would be no dressed if there was no New York City. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of in many ways our love letter to New York City and our love letter to our listeners. And, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons we reconceptualized it is because it was, we realized April that it was so expensive, right? It was more than our eight day Paris trip to do four days in New York. And it's because- And that's because New York is insanely expensive. Yeah. I live here and I keep telling yeah. Cass, I'm like, Cass, <laughs> even compared to like when you yeah. lived here, like- yeah. 
it's astronomical here right yeah. now. Yeah, it's, 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 it was so expensive. expensive. And we, this, this way we've been able to basically, it's $300 a day, where before it was $1,000 a day, um, basically. And so we've made it a lot more affordable. And then we just received so many messages from like so many of our New York listeners who wanted to join us locally and uh and Didn't then of need course, the hotel. So many, <laughs> yes exactly and you can still join us right if you want to come and get your own accommodations we'd still love to have you but yeah i mean this is our love letter to new york right april because this is where we met mm-hmm. yep and dress would not exist if it were not for new york city so how can people learn a little bit more about our itineraries for those days Cass? Yeah, so we have this all up on our website now. So you can go to dressedhistory.com to sign up, as I said, for one, two, or three days. So we've we've already talked about this, so we won't go into too much detail. But one of the great things about New York City, right, is the historic garment district, right? Mm-hmm. It's such a rich, incredibly rich history. And so that's where we're starting our tour. We're doing two really special behind the scenes tours of two family owned ateliers that are still in operation. Uh, The first is the only custom silk flower factory in New York City. They're world renowned and they still use the same tools that they used when they opened in 1919 and the same processes. And so we're going to get to learn about that and take home some souvenirs. And then the other is pleating, right? So Mm -hmm. those like ateliers that we always talk about in terms of haute couture, not unique to France and not unique to the haute couture these like hand pleating techniques are also something that New York, this New York business is really known for. And so we start there and then we go to the place where dress started. We spend the entire afternoon at the place where April and I met. Mm-hmm. At FIT. Fashion so, Institute. <laughs> yeah, we are going to be welcomed into the museum at FIT's study collection, where we are going to be able to look at garments up close, like the inside. We're going to be able to look at corsets. And, and, and this is not something that you normally do when you go on a museum visit. Um, a lot of these um, items, you know, may have been designed by people that we have mentioned on the show. So this is up close and personal IRL kind of experience. And then also too, everybody's going to come with me to special collections where I work. And we're going to look at extremely rare 18th century fashion magazines, uh, rare fashion ephemera, you name it, we're, we're basically going to play um, adult show and tell in special collections as well. <laughs> so these are two experiences, as are pretty much everything on this entire tour that are kind of behind the scenes, super exclusive. These things are just not really open to the general public. And that was our whole premise of creating these tours. So we've called in favors. We've asked uh, friends to open up their, you know, (laughs) museum archives and give us permission to come in. Um, And yeah, that's, that's what these three days are really about. Yeah, absolutely. And again, something that's just so special to us. The afternoon at FIT is something that April and I have, you know, that's where we met, right? We met in special collections, Mm -hmm. pouring over fashion plates. That's where we bonded. And so we're so excited to just kind of share these special experiences with you. Friday, you know, we spend the entire day at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We have behind the scenes access there. Uh, And just check out our website, head on over to www.dressedhistory.com to reserve your spot. Um, Like I said, you can sign up there for either 
there one, two, or all three days, Mm -hmm. please don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions. And we are just so incredibly excited about this tour. And we really, really hope to see you there. Yes, yes, yes. And on our website, there is a tab at the top that says group tours. And that is where you're going to go to find out more detailed information. Do you have anything else this week? Because I do not. I do not either. I think this is the point where we sign off. (laughs) Okay. That does it for us today, dress listeners. Again, if you'd like more detailed information or you have questions about the New York trip, always feel free to write to us at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram and our Instagram account is at dressed underscore podcast. Uh, And until next week, I think that's it. Yes. More dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media.